If you have your Bible, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 2. One down, 20 to go. John chapter 2, that's page 942 of the Pew Bibles. If you don't have a good Bible, please take that with you. That is our gift to you this morning. John chapter 2. If you do a lot of reading, you probably do the same thing that I do when I, when I start with a book. At least a lot of nonfiction reading. This is at least what you should do. The first thing you should do is, <laughs> pro tip, <laughs> you look at the table of contents. What you're getting in the table of contents is you're trying to understand the structure of the book, what the author is going to be doing, kind of the pathway that he's taking you through. Then you read the introduction. You should always read an introduction. Some people skip these things. Here we're getting the author's thesis, that's the argument that they're making, maybe a purpose statement, why they're writing, a methodological statement, how they're um, intending to kind of prove the argument that they're making. And so these two things taken together, table of contents and introduction, what they do for a book is they serve as an interpretive guide for you as you're reading. You're getting a lot of what you need in the beginning to understand the rest of the book. Now we just began the book of John, and we started by jumping right into the introduction. Okay, this is intentional. Then we get the preamble in verses 1 through 18, and then we get these, this episode really with John the Baptist. And what John is giving us is this interpretive guide for every time we come across Jesus, we understand who he is. Right? We saw he's the Word of God. He's the Son of God. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Son of Man. He's the King of Israel. He is Israel's long-awaited Messiah. So now every time we come across Jesus in the book of John, we have this kind of understanding of who he is. Uh, if you're a member, especially, and you've not listened to the other sermons in John, I would encourage you to go back and hear those. What we've not considered up to this point is the outline of John and kind of a thesis statement. Why, what's he arguing? Why is he writing? This has been intentional. There's a classic way of dividing up the book of John. We've got the introduction, which we covered, chapter 1, and then the rest of the book is split in half. Chapters 2 through 12 are what are called the book of signs. And then chapters 13 through the end, that's through 21, is called the book of glory. Okay, if you remember last week, Jesus makes this promise to Nathaniel, and it's really, it's a promise to all of us as well, that he would see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That is Nathaniel and those who follow Jesus, they're going to be given um, kind of divine proof, right? Heavenly confirmation that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God and the Son of Man. And John has structured his book in such a way to show us the glory of Christ. And Jesus is going to display this glory, heaven opening up, angels ascending, descending. He gives us these heavenly confirmations through a series of signs. There are seven of them in the book of John. And they are in the book of signs, chapters 2 through 12. And so you get, we get the first one today. You can think of all of them as kind of just these little steps that we're taking. Jesus displaying his glory until we get to the book of glory, chapters 13 through 21, where Jesus climaxes his glory in the most paradoxical way by dying on a cross. He glorifies his father by completing the work that was given to him. His father will receive him and glorify him once again with the glory that he had with the father for all of eternity. So we have the book of signs leading us to the book of glory. That's kind of the structure. Why? John tells us, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, Jesus performed many other signs. He did a lot more than seven. 
Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus, or John rather, is going to take us through this journey in his book, sign after sign, until we reach the climax, his death and resurrection. John's goal is that we would believe. For the non-Christian, that's initial belief, that they would repent and believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the Lamb of God. The book's not just evangelistic, it's also for the Christian, that we would continue to believe. More than that, that our faith would be strengthened as we follow Jesus Christ. And so John begins with the first sign today. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. If you are able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, They don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars have been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. Amen. You can be seated. Jesus begins his public ministry with a sign. Now, I don't know about you, but I would expect Jesus' first sign to be awesome. <laughs> John's only going to record seven of them. This is the first one. Like, I'm thinking with the snap of a finger, Jesus wipes out Israel's enemies, like holy Thanos. Or he furnishes a miracle of old, like splitting the Red Sea in half. Something big, something unmistakable, something in a crowded area with the priests, the scribes, the rulers. And yet here we are in Cana of Galilee, the land of the Gentiles, not too far from where Jesus was born, probably nine or so miles, not too far from where Jesus met Nathaniel, at a wedding for someone you never even heard of. Like, this isn't the royal wedding. This is not a wedding out of crazy rich Asians. This is a rural wedding. It's so rural, in fact, they are going to run out of wine. And for Jesus' first sign, he's going to keep the wine going out. Now, John, as I said last week, he's a master of taking something that's mundane, and yet it's loaded with meaning. The sign is not simply first. It stands at the head because of all that it represents, that the messianic age is here, that the new creation is dawning, that true purification has arrived. How does this 
sign display his glory. Again, John has written this book with the signs in particular that we might believe. And so we're just going to ask a question this morning of the text. This is kind of our big idea in question form. Why should we believe in Jesus? Why should we believe in Jesus? We'll see three things from the text, Lord willing. One, he's the compassionate son. Second, he's the culmination of the law. And thirdly, he's the creator and recreator of the world. So why should we believe in Jesus? I think we see three things from this text. Jesus is the compassionate son. He's the culmination of the law, and he's the creator and the recreator of the world. First, Jesus is the compassionate son. So we start in verse 1. In the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Now, if you've been following along, you've noticed that John starts his book with a chronological sequencing. Okay, we begin with the religious leaders interrogating John in verse 19. Then we get the next day in 29, the next day in 35, the next day in 43. And now we're to read this, I think, as three days later. That puts this at the seventh day. And so the book of John, it begins with a week that I think is intended to parallel the Passion Week at the end of the book. And I think John in particular wants us to have in mind the Creation Week. It makes sense given the way that the book begins. Jesus is there in the beginning as the creative word of God. It makes sense given this sign in particular, that by speaking a word, Jesus, the word, will turn water, a kind of nothingness, into wine. It, in fact, as we'll see, is a picture of new creation in our third point so day after day after day, John is leading us here to a kind of climax. He's going to, after this, ditch the sequencing of day after day after day. He's leading us to this point, the first sign. It's the climax. We should take notice. Verse 1, in the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. I think there are a couple of quick things that we can glean even from verse 1. I don't know about you guys, but some of the most fun I've had in life and some of the most bored I've ever been are at weddings. <laughs> some of the, the happiest I've been, maybe the saddest, <laughs> excited and worried. I love that we see Jesus for his first sign at a wedding. It reminds us, yes, that he's the son of God and also that he became man. Jesus is a human. He did human stuff. It seems like not a big deal that he's at a wedding because in one sense, it's not a big deal. That's what we do. And then in another sense, it's a huge deal because Jesus is there. I think it shows us that Jesus is not ascetic, right? He's not spending his days living in a cave renouncing God's creation and only reading Holy Scripture. Now, no doubt, you know, don't be mistaken about what I'm saying. Jesus loves God's word. Given the choice of bread and Bible, Jesus chooses Bible. He loves God's word. He is God's word. God's word is about him. Creation is also God's. It's also about God. It's a gift that God gives us that we might enjoy him and in worship him in gratitude. And so we see that Jesus is just doing a normal human thing. He's at a wedding, okay? It also means that Jesus is social. Like people liked him enough that they invited him to a wedding. <laughs> He worked with his hands, he played, he got invited to parties and weddings, maybe game nights. I'm assuming he did these things. 
And again, people, they knew him, they liked him enough that they invited him to do stuff like this, and he did it. Being a Christian, this is important. It means renouncing the world, the world in the sense of everything that's set up in opposition to God. It doesn't mean renouncing the created world or the stuff of the earth. Our problem is that we take the things of earth and we twist them. We make idols of them, right? We do this with our relationships, with work, with wine. I'll say this as a quick disclaimer. I didn't know where to fit this in. This is it, given the story. I think we understand this, that getting drunk on wine or any alcohol for that matter is a sin, right? Like any thing in creation, it's a gift from God to be enjoyed within its creaturely limits. This is true of something like fire or sex or food and wine. When we move it outside of those bounds, it becomes dangerous. Wine in particular, alcohol in particular, can be destructive. So our problem is we take things like that, we twist them, but as we'll see, I think, in the story, God's grace, it doesn't destroy creation, it restores it. It perfects what has fallen. Okay, so we see right off the bat that Jesus is human. He honors creation. And more than that, or in addition to that, Jesus honors marriage. Think about the creation account. Basically, the first thing we see afterwards is a marriage between Adam and Eve. The last thing, basically, we see in Scripture is a marriage between Christ and his bride, his people. It's not insignificant that Jesus' first sign is at a wedding. Jesus honors creation, and he honors the most foundational creation ordinance, marriage. Now, this, of course, is not because marriage is ultimate. Rather, it points to a greater reality, the union between Jesus and his people. Again, we'll see this in our third point later, but it's significant. Jesus starts at a wedding, okay? He's kicking it there. He's with his boys, and his mom comes up. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. Now, Mary wasn't simply conveying the news, She's not gossiping like, can you believe what dress she wore? And they've already run out of wine. (laughs) This party sucks. We know that she wants Jesus to do something because of verse 5. Now, running out of wine would have been a big deal. These weddings could have lasted upwards to a week long. And it was actually the groom's responsibility to cover the finances of the wedding. So don't think uh, the parents or the bride as in our culture it would have been incredibly shameful in the shame-honor culture. It would have been shameful for the groom, for his family, for his new bride. Mary sees a problem, and she goes to her son. Now, what do you guys think she wants from her son? Think about it. Mary doesn't have the advantage of the prologue. She's not read John 1, 1 through 18. She's never read John chapter 2. She doesn't know how this ends up. This is Jesus' first sign he's never done a miracle before, okay? It's not like on hard days of parenting Jesus and his siblings, Jesus has turned her goblet of water into wine. She's never seen a miracle before from him. What does she want from him? We do know Gabriel tells Mary in Luke chapter 1 that she would give birth to a sign, that he would be called the most high, that he he would sit on the throne of his father David forever. It would be a kingdom without end. Sometime later, shepherds come and they worship him. Sometime later, wise men show up and worship him. We don't know what else Mary knows. I'm assuming she's heard what we've heard at this point, that John the Baptist said that he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that he's the spirit-anointed Messiah who baptizes his people. He's heard what Andrew said, that he's the Messiah. 
She's heard that Philip has called him the one Moses wrote about, that Nathaniel has called him the son of God and the king of Israel. I'm assuming she's heard also from Jesus' lips that he is the son of man, the one on whom the angels will ascend and descend. And you know what? She's also his mom, okay? If I had one kid, if I had a bunch of kids and one of them never sinned, I would know it. <laughs> I'd be like, I'm spanking all these kids but that one. <laughs> What's going on? But here's what's important for us to grasp. Mary has not seen Jesus do anything miraculous, and yet she proceeds in faith. Okay, Jesus will say in John chapter 20, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. She brings, and don't miss it, she brings a problem to Jesus. It's a specific problem. It's a mundane problem, a daily problem. They've run out of wine. In all her time with Jesus, her son, she knows him to be compassionate. She knows he cares, and she believes, she has a hunch that he's able to do something. Again, able to do what? She doesn't know, I doubt, but she believes he can do something. Jesus, they don't have any wine. He responds, verse 4, what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Now, if I'm at a wedding, my mom shows up, she asks me to do something, this is probably how I responded. <laughs> what is this problem of yours to do with me? I think Jesus is offering a mild rebuke to his mother. If you don't think this is a rebuke, you should try it the next time your mom or your wife or your sister asks something of you, <laughs> right? <laughs> Will you feed the kids? This concern of yours has nothing to do with me, woman. <laughs> you better be able to turn the couch into a bed. <laughs> it does... Sound rude, I think, so we need to deal with it. Jesus more literally is saying, what to you and me? It's a common idiom. It's mostly used negatively in the Gospels. What it's doing, this idiom, it's creating distance between Jesus and his mother. What to you and me? We would probably say something like, what does this have to do with me? Or, that's none of my business. And then, Jesus calls her woman. Not Mary, not mother, he calls her woman. Now, this should be obvious, but the vocative woman is not inherently derogatory, okay? Jesus will call the woman at the well in John chapter 4, woman, right? His intention there, I promise you, is to dignify her and to save her, a woman who's been abused and exploited her entire life. Jesus, again, will use woman in John chapter 19 when he's on the cross, verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. It might be best for us to read it like good Southerners, ma'am, okay? Like, ma'am, this isn't any of my business. I think we are to understand it as a slight rebuff to Mary. And I don't know, but what I think is happening here is that Mary is having to learn a difficult lesson, that her son is not just her son, he's the son of God, Yes, she birthed him, she nursed him, she raised him, but especially now that his public ministry has begun, he's not simply her child, he is her Lord. She's gonna have to approach him the way that everyone else does by faith. There is no position of privilege before God, not even for Jesus's mother. So Jesus, it seems he gives this mild rebuke. Mary can't presume on the family relations here. This is the Christ, and Jesus, I think, in love, tells Mary what she needs to hear. And then he says at the end of this in verse four, this is the reason I think that for his reluctance, 
my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. What is Christ's hour? We see it a lot in the book of John. In John 7.30 and John 8.20, people are trying to seize Jesus to kill him, but they couldn't, the text says, because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus says, that hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. As we're moving from book of signs to book of glory, John 17.1, shortly before Jesus is apprehended, he prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. Jesus' hour in the book of John, it is the time, the appointed time for his paradoxical um, death and glorification. It's his glorious hour, his glorious death. And so Jesus, I think, he's pushing back because he's saying his hour, the time for his death and resurrection has not yet come. And Jesus knows, I think, that the second he does a public sign, it's going to set into motion the events that are going to lead to his hour. It's not time for that yet. The Son of Man alone has the authority to lay down his life and to raise it up, right? Mom can't tell me what to do with regards to this. And yet, this is why he came. Verse 5, she says, do whatever he tells you. She tells this to the servants. This is great. I love it. She gets no indication of any kind of yes from Jesus. In fact, it sounds like he says no. But she didn't hear an outright no, and that's all she needed. <laughs> I didn't know that was going to be funny. <laughs> I was expecting an amen. <laughs> okay? Amen. Hey, thank you, brother. She didn't hear no, and that's all she needed to persist in her faith. Think about it. She's never seen him do a miracle. She's not put off by his mild rebuke. He doesn't say yes. In fact, it sounds like he says no. She proceeds in faith, knowing her son is compassionate, and she believes him able to act. Able to do what? Again, she probably doesn't know, but to deal with this problem. Christ indeed will act. He will turn the water into wine. Brothers and sisters, this tells us that Jesus hears us. He hears the requests of his people. He's moved by our prayers even as mundane as they are, like the running out of wine at a wedding. Right? He cares about every detail of your life, the fact that you're tired, that your bank account is low, that you're exhausted, that you're lonely, that your relationships are rocky. Jesus cares about it all. Brothers and sisters, are you persistent in carrying your burdens to Jesus? Are you quick to interpret his apparent no as callousness, as though he's being rude to you. I'm not saying Jesus will always provide what we ask for, but he will always give us what we need. We should continue to ask in faith for the things that we believe to be the will of God. Mary, I think, demonstrates courageous, persistent faith, and Jesus is going to honor her for it. And then Mary gives incredible advice. I'm not sure if you caught it. This is some of the best advice you could get as a Christian. Verse 5, do whatever he tells you. That is better than WWJD. <laughs> we should throw that on a bracelet. D-W-H-T-Y. It's not that complicated. I'm not saying obedience to Christ is always easy. But brothers and sisters, he purposes good for us. He acts for our good. He commands for our good do what he tells you to do. It might not even make sense, but trust him. 
do what he tells you. Mothers, we see, are some of the best at teaching theology because it's simple, right? She teaches us in these first few verses about the value of simple faith and of simple obedience in the compassionate son. Believe upon him, listen to him, do what he tells you to do. He's worthy, he's compassionate, he's able, he cares. We believe in Jesus first because he's the compassionate son. And second, we believe in Jesus because he's the culmination of the law. Jesus is the culmination of the law. Going forward in the narrative, verse 6, now six stone water jars have been set there for Jewish purification. Each contain 20 or 30 gallons. Now these are the jars that Jesus will have filled with water. He will turn them into wine. I think John is incredibly purposeful in the details that he's giving us in his narrative. He knows that there are six jars, but not just that there are six jars, that the jars that are there, they're used for Jewish purification. John could have just said there are six jars, but he doesn't. He's not either there for Jewish purification, again, I think for a reason, as Jesus is going to transform something good into something more glorious, from water to wine. Think about it. Jesus could have provided more wine in any way he wanted to. He could have had uh, people's cups. They can never go empty. They're always full. He could have done the really obvious thing. I think the really obvious thing would have been taking the previous jars or bags or caskets, whatever they were, and filling them back up with wine. He could have made it rain wine from the ceiling if he wanted. He could have done anything. And yet, He chooses these jars that are set there for Jewish purification. He's going to have them filled with water. He's going to have them turned to wine. Why? We get a picture in Mark chapter 7 what these jars are used for. Mark writes there, beginning in verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. Ceremonial cleaning for the couch before you sit down. Now, these aren't commandments from the Lord, but they're from the religious leaders. What they had done was they had set rules around God's law, which is not inherently a bad thing. It's bad when you misunderstand God's law. It's bad when you elevate your tradition to the level of authority. You're saying it's infallible as though God himself has spoken it. They are doing both these things, misunderstanding and then raising their tradition to the level of God's law. They were teaching that you became ceremonially unclean if you ate with dirty hands and dirty dishes. I think we understand this. Eating off a dirty plate doesn't make you unclean before God. Right? We are unclean before God because we have sin-stained hearts and hands. Water is not going to make you pure. I think we're to take these ceremonial jars as symbols of Israel's religion, both as God intended it in the law and as it was practiced in the tradition of the elders. Jesus is going to take something good and he's going to bring it to an end by replacing it with something better. Okay, we move from water, Jewish purification, which does not have the ability to make you clean. He's going to replace it with wine, which is, as we heard in Isaiah 25, wine is a symbol of the messianic age. Okay, we'll see this more in our third point. Water can't cleanse the soul, just like the blood of goats and bulls, Hebrews 10.4, cannot actually clean us from our sin. Jesus is going to fulfill and replace. The signs in the book of John, they often show us um, a type of replacement. If you look just down in 
your Bible, John chapter 2, the cleansing of the temple, verse 18, the Jews reply to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? This is after Jesus cleansed the temple. Jesus then responds, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. So the sign here is showing that there is a greater temple that has come. It's replacing, it's fulfilling this stone temple with all of its systems and sacrifices and priests. Something better is here. It's important to know that John doesn't just call them miracles, but signs. They are pointing to a greater reality. Often that there's this fulfillment and replacement because Jesus Christ, the substance, has come. So I think in the same way Jesus is showing us through the sign that the time of external purification has come to an end because Jesus Christ, the substance, the age of the Messiah has come. John, in the first three chapters in particular, he's kind of showing us this movement from, uh, I think here, water to wine, which is law to gospel. There is this movement from old temple to new temple. There's a movement in John 3 when Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus from old creation to new creation. And so Jesus is giving us this sign that there is this movement that has happened from good to better. In fact, the head waiter in John or in verse 10 of this chapter will say, basically, you've saved the best stuff until last. This is how the arc of Scripture works as we move from creation to new creation, from garden to new Jerusalem, from Moses to Christ. God has saved the best until last. And so Jesus, I think, is showing us through the sign act that the law was coming to an end. It was good. It was gracious. But something better is here. Now, again, John in his prologue, gives us um, a kind of grid for interpretation. You'll recall verses 16 and 17. John says, We have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, that is, we've received grace through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. This is the grace upon grace, the fullness of grace. We get it through Jesus. God started with the law, which is good, holy, and just, Romans 7, but something better is here. Something more glorious. We receive out of the fullness, the abundance of his grace. Think about even the detail about there's six jars. They each hold between 20 and 30 gallons. We'll just split it down the middle. That's 150 gallons of wine. That's about 750 bottles of wine. I promise you that is more than this party needs. They are already drunk. What Jesus is doing He could have just used one or two probably to supply their needs, but he's going to show us how lavish his grace is, right? As we move from law to gospel, he gives us out of the overflow, out of the abundance of his grace. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. For if the ministry that brought condemnation had glory, the ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more. In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. We receive grace upon grace from his fullness. The righteousness overflows. It's more than enough for us. What Jewish purification could not do, God himself has done in his son. Think again about what John is eager to show us in the first chapter. How is God going to purify us? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Spirit-anointed Messiah, the one who the Spirit rests on who baptizes his people in the spirit. Jesus, 
as the Lamb of God dealt with the punishment due our sins on the cross once and for all. He then baptizes us as people with his spirit, cleansing us, giving us new hearts, making us clean. Jesus purifies us in the way that the law could not. He fulfills what it pointed to. Someone more righteous than Moses is here, more just than David, more powerful than Elijah. Someone more glorious is here. He has brought to an end the ministry of death, 2 Corinthians 3, by dying under it that we might live. Jesus, the bridegroom. Jesus purifies us out of the fullness of his grace. And it's beautiful to think that Jesus alone makes us pure. He washes his bride in the word. We don't have to contribute to it. He does it alone. We don't have to wash ourselves in the water. Rather, we plunge ourselves into the mercy of Christ. Why should we believe in Jesus? Through this sign, I think he's demonstrating that he is indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Spirit-anointed Messiah who purifies his people by baptizing them in the Spirit. What the law and the tradition could not do with water, Jesus himself will do with his blood. The age of the Messiah is dawned. We also believe in Jesus. We come down to our third point. Because Jesus is the creator and the recreator of the world. This is closely related to our last point. Jesus is the creator and the recreator of the world. Verse 7. Here, we're back in the narrative. Jesus says, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. Okay, the head waiter is like the wedding planner. Verse 9, when the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom, and he told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then, then after people are drunk, the inferior, but you have kept the fine wine until now. The head waiter gives us this kind of basic I guess, principle for parties, like you start with the good wine. And then when people won't notice anymore, you give them the bad wine, right? Like the basically old grape juice wine. And he's like, you have done the most unexpected thing. You've done it in reverse. You started with what's good, and now you've given us something that's fine. It's glorious. It's better. I promise you, this is the best wine that he has ever tasted because it was made by God himself, right? The good, creative, all-powerful, holy God-become-man has turned water into wine. And notice how Jesus makes it. He simply speaks, fill the jars with water. Again, recall the prologue or guide, Genesis, echoes of Genesis 1.1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. The word of God speaks and creates where there was water, wine where there was water. Not just some, but a lot. Not just wine, but the best wine you've ever had. This is something that the creator alone can do, but I think it shows us not just that Jesus is the creator, but also that he is the recreator. Okay, think about what goes into making good wine. This would be true for making anything from raw materials. Good cheese, good bread, good jewelry, a good table. I'm going to simplify this, but to make something good, you need a good creator and you need good creation. Okay, in the case of wine, you need a person who knows what they're doing. 
right? They have the creativity, the skill, the knowledge, the experience. They understand how it works, and you need the right materials, the right location, climate, soil, sun, rain. You need certain conditions to be right. To make something good, you need good creator, good creation. You need both. I promise you, if you make wine in your backyard, it will be the wine they serve last at the wedding. Some of the best vineyards in the world have been around hundreds of years, if not close to a thousand years. They are in ideal locations, and there has been a passing on of wisdom, skill, knowledge, tradition. When Jesus turns the water into wine, he demonstrates that he is the creator and the recreator, meaning not only is he Lord over this creation, but he's remaking it into something glorious. We know this because of the place of wine in the biblical storyline or narrative. Now, Adam was a gardener. I assume that he would have made wine with time, but when Adam sinned against God, God curses the ground. This is Genesis 3, verse 17. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Because of the curse, ground doesn't yield to us as it did previously in the garden. Where we want fruit, we get thistles. Weeds grow with our crops. We have droughts. We get bugs and disease in our vineyards. Okay, if there was no sin, the produce at Kroger would always be perfect. But you know that's not the case. This is because of the curse. Now, when Israel enters Canaan, the promised land, it's supposed to be a picture of God's people re-entering something like the Garden of Eden. Okay, God says that if they carefully obey his commandments, listen to this in Deuteronomy 11, I will provide rain for your land in proper time, the autumn and the spring rains, and you will harvest your grain, new wine, and fresh oil. I will provide grass in your fields for your livestock. You will eat and be satisfied. Okay, if they obey, they receive blessing. They re the land yields to them as it should. Wine in particular, which is a picture of, of blessing, but if they disobey, verse 17 of Deuteronomy 11, then the Lord's anger will burn against you. He will shut the sky and there will be no rain. The land will not yield its produce and you will perish quickly from the good land that the Lord is giving you. So much like the garden for Israel in Canaan, if they walk faithfully with the Lord, they receive blessing. The ground in particular, it works for them the way that they're supposed to they will be able to harvest wine as an example. It's a picture of blessing. Okay, but much like the garden, if they don't obey God, what they'll get is curse. It doesn't matter how skilled you are if the creation and the creator are working against you. Israel, of course, disobeys and brought covenant curses upon themselves. In fact, they're unable to obey under the law because what they need is a new heart. They need what the law couldn't give them, real purity, they, like the land, need to be recreated. So there's this problem under the law. It's that the blessings of God are out of reach, in a sense. And it's not because of God. It's because of the people's sinfulness. And so God, in his kindness, he makes a promise that one day in the Messianic age, the new creation, God will undo all that is wrong, both with us and the land. We read this earlier for our scripture reading, but hear it again from Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine. Prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. 
on this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. When he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. The point is God is going to recreate his world and he's gonna bless them. He's gonna gather them, us, his people. The curse will be no more. Our disgrace, like the shame of the groom at this wedding, will be gone. Amos 9, Hosea 14, Jeremiah 31, they all speak of the Messianic age as an age of wine. What they're saying is that the curse that brought us thorn and thistle will be done away with. We will experience the fullness of life when we're with God on his holy mountain all will be made right. Jesus is doing more than meeting a need at a wedding, though he's doing that. He's demonstrating that the blessings of the new creation have dawned in him. The wine of the new age is here. Soon, sin will be no more. Soon, death will lose its grip. Soon, our shame and disgrace will be gone. God himself will wipe the tears away from our faces. How? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ himself through his death and resurrection brings this new world with him. And again, it's not an insignificant thing that this takes place at a wedding. As I mentioned, the creation account essentially begins with the wedding. The Bible essentially ends with the wedding. Revelation 19 calls it the marriage feast of the Lamb. And Revelation 21, we get this picture of the new Jerusalem coming down from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. The people of God are finally united to him perfectly. We behold his face. He wipes away our tears. We get what was promised to Nathaniel. We behold his glory. And as we heard in our call to worship, he gives freely to the thirsty. We feast with God as he mends our wounds, we're united to him forever on his holy mountain, which, as Amos 9 says, drips with wine, which is to say it is a place of blessing and joy. All is made right. Jesus, on that day, gave this small wedding in Cana of Galilee a foretaste of heaven. They drank of the new creation of a wine that was unstained by the curse. Only some of them understood Verse 11, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. They believed as they should have from the sign, but I think most of them missed it. Jesus performs this incredible sign. His glory is revealed. The servants knew. And yet there's no note about them believing. I think that if they did, we would have read about it. You would think they would have told other people at the wedding about what it is that they saw. And yet only the disciples believe. It's as John told us again in his prologue that Jesus came to his own, but they didn't recognize him. They rejected him. But to those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. You see, it's not enough to see the sign. It's not enough even to taste the water, to hear the sermon. We must believe. For the non-Christian, this story, this real story, it is an invitation for you to believe in Jesus Christ, the one whom through his life, his death, and resurrection is making all things new. He offers you exactly what you need, which is the forgiveness of sins and to be made right with God. He offers you purity, a purity that you cannot come 
by your own works. For the Christian, this story, it is an invitation to continue believing in Jesus, to trust a compassionate son, the one who purifies our hearts and our hands, the creator of this world and of the world to come. As surely as he turned water into wine, he will remake this place. The curse will be gone. We will behold our God. We will see him in his glory. May we long for that day. The Lord has said it. It will happen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your loving kindness to us. That you had sent your son to come and to display his glory that we might believe. That you had sent your son to come and to be the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Who died on our behalf. Who took the punishment for our sins. We thank you that you have indwelled us with your spirit. That you have made us new. We pray for any non-Christian who might be here. We pray that they would see in this story the glory of your son, that they would come to saving faith and repentance. We pray, pray that we would be eager to tell others about what it is that we have seen in Christ. We pray that you'd help us to long for the day and to live in light of that day where sin will be no more, where all things will be made new. We thank you that we are one day closer. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.